and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the feast that feeds you starves our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the March 14th, 2018 broadcast in our sixth season. On and near this day in history, March 13th, 1794, Eli Whitney patented the cotton gin based on the ideas and plans of a slave, making it possible to clean 50 pounds of cotton a day compared to a pound a day before the invention. This made cotton king and increased the demand for slave labor. Also, Fannie Lou Hammer, freedom fighter, died in 1977. Her motto was, nobody is free until everybody is free, and we agree. And finally, on March 15, 1827, Freedom's Journal, the first black newspaper in the U.S., was published by John Russworm and Samuel Cornish, featuring an editorial supporting the colonialization of Africa by African Americans. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Luis Gonzaga Pinta de Gama, a Brazilian poet, journalist, legal activist, abolitionist leader, and former slave, 1830 to 1882. In the segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, we will remember Gabriel Prosser's Rebellion of August 1800. I know Scotty is looking forward to that one. A writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Malcolm Alexander, who has spent nearly four decades incarcerated for a crime he did not commit. Thanks to the Innocence Project, Alexander was exonerated and freed February 20th, 2018. As usual, we'll dissect and disseminate current news and events related to 13th Amendment slavery from the perspectives of slavery abolitionists. That includes sheriffs making three times their salary by taking home money meant for prisoners' food, an NYPD cop who was busted as a drug lord, an ICE official who just quit over the lies that are being told by the Trump administration about immigrants, and a bail bonds woman who shot a man in cold blood and 
for not having their money to pay them. And also, we have a recorded message from Alabama inmate Swift Justice of Unheard Voices and the Free Alabama Movement. You've heard his messages here before on New Abolitionist Radio. There's all that and much more, so let's get started. If you've got a question or comment, you can call us 704-802-5026. You can chat with us and others by logging in right now at uberconference.com slash Black Talk Radio Network. So, once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? Uh, doing the best I can. Um, lots of stuff that is happening. Uh, the world is just, you know, just coming at you from so many different directions. But uh, it's a pleasure to hear your voice again and to be on the airwaves and convey this information uh, to to those who tune in to the new abolitionists out there. I got a question for you, Scotty. Yes. We're very adept at providing knowledge like we provide a lot of knowledge and you could literally try create to. a library over the knowledge that we yeah, have provided we, right? we try to ask this question huh we try to but what's your question my question is if knowledge is power then what is wisdom the ability to use that knowledge to bring about change Okay, I appreciate your answer, man. I asked some friends of mine that today, and it became a, a pretty vibrant conversation. Cause, um, I was thinking about it, you know, and uh, thinking about our role as messengers and, the, you know, just what we are trying to do and, and what we have accomplished and what we're trying to accomplish. And uh, it made me wonder, if knowledge is power, then what is wisdom? Because we have to have some wisdom with this power, that this knowledge that we provide as well. And we try to discern, be discerning, in the things that we say and do we're not always right but who is for real who is i mean if we get it more than half we're doing better than most and we get it near close to almost every single time it's very uh few times where we've been mistaken about what we were talking about in here or couldn't back it up with proof scotty another way to look at it is those who control knowledge are in power or have power it's not so much what you know, but if you control what everybody else think they know, because remember, and I'm talking about the so-called institutions of higher education, your colleges and universities here in the United States for um, about a century and a half have been teaching student class after student class that the uh, slavery was abolished after the 13th amendment and they've been controlling that knowledge and everybody believes that so even though it's false knowledge it, it's you know if you had the ability to plant that into another person's mind and that becomes their reality uh, even though it is a false reality that's power that's powerful right there to me you know that that's a powerful statement on the power of propaganda and and so education, whoever controls that, you know, pretty much American curriculum is all prop. It's mostly, I would say, if we're talking about uh, social studies and and history. Um, you know, we're talking about a lot of propaganda that is interjected in that from a white supremacist viewpoint. And in uh, case in point, National Geographic. I saw you shared the article just came out recently and apologized yes. for. Um, it's racist propaganda and how it portrayed people of the world, melanated people of the world. So, so you know, um, I don't mean to ramble, but 
I mean, that's why it's important. This recent court case in the NCAA, again, this is the, you know, co- uh, Association of Colleges and Universities, so-called educators or those who issue the degrees in, in saying who got knowledge on what, you know, the recognized pieces of paper in this system are saying on a piece of paper in the legal system that slavery was never abolished and we have a right to practice slavery under the 13th amendment so that's why that's a very important case and that knowledge or knowledge of the story of their their motion to dismiss and citing the 13th amendment is being suppressed so if you don't have that information you're powerless to confront your university officials and and whatnot about practicing slavery am i making sense max yeah you're you're making absolute sense it's, it's like the story we'll be talking about tonight where the sheriff have been using the food money as their own personal bank account prisoners food money all across america it's not new we've reported on other cases here on new abolitionist radio and been trying to tell you that this is how it's going across the country these are what these people are doing now and and those cases are being very much suppressed. So yeah, I I, I, I know what you're talking about. I feel you on that. Without the knowledge that is ha- that's even happening, like that we're providing here tonight, very few would be aware. And if we're lucky, maybe the right ones become aware, and things change. Right. They had the wisdom to to assess the situation where they are locally or or whatever resources they have to even affect it on a global scale like you said the right one or the right group or of people um armed with knowledge can bring about great change right right so i don't know wisdom is not something that can be taught it's like you you can gain it but normally you either have it or you don't wisdom is gained through practice um um, not what what's the old saying, uh, Max? Through you experience, know, experience where you know you you long you've been around long enough to observe your own mistakes. You know, because you learn oh, from your mistakes as from much as from your successes. Man learns from his mistakes of others and others, yeah. like you said, and, and then being able to apply that to um, you know a search a situation in your own life. So, you know, just having the knowledge, if you can't apply it, then I guess you don't, you know, you're not being wise then in your use of that. We're we're going a little off track of what we normally do. Yeah, yeah, we are. This is an important conversation about things like this, because really we're talking about the simplest things of all, knowledge, understanding, you know, because really we're trying to help control our own narrative here. As Scotty pointed out, this counter narrative is going to run out and the uh, resources available to them are just beyond imagination. We're over here scratching nickels together and fighting against this beast that could literally raise armies across the whole globe. You know what I mean? In a propaganda war, trying to control our own narrative. But here's the difference. Like Scotty mentioned earlier, our narrative is one based on truth and reality. Their narrative is on what people think. You, you know what I'm, what I'm saying, Scotty? I guess Malcolm said it best, uh, and you quoted it a few times, uh, a, a good number of times, where he said, if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you... Uh, how's the rest of it go, Scotty? If you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people being oppressed and loving the people doing the oppressing. 
Yes, and that plays out every day in not only domestic policy here in the United States, but also on international policy. When we're talking about the U.S. government, I'm talking about institutionally. But I agree, Max. Yeah, he he said that. If you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating Russians. And it's really Democrats that undermine your democracy. You know what I'm saying? To put a modern spin on it. Yes, yeah, yeah. I know what you're saying, Scotty. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that uh, Fannie Lou Hammer died on this day in 1977. Would you mind if today we share a short clip about her and what she uh, had done? One of the reasons why people know so much about her. It's the uh, last link on our planning page. Oh, and by the way, if you're listening and you'd ever like to check out our planning pages, because we put a lot of stuff in there that doesn't make it to the program, but we try to document what's going on today, so to speak. So if you ever want to check that uh, planning page out, just go to community.blacktalkradionetwork.com and look up abolitionists. We're there every week with it. Scotty? The testimony before the Prudentials Committee, the FDP had a lineup of very different people. They had Rita Schwerner, the widow of Mickey, who had been killed in Neshoba County. They had Martin Luther King. Everybody knew King. The seating of the delegation from the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party has political and moral significance far beyond the borders of Mississippi are the halls of this convention. But the highlight of the testimony was that of Fannie Lou Hamer. The sharecropper who had been evicted from her plantation had come to symbolize the Mississippi movement. Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee, it was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola with, by policemen. The president, Lyndon Johnson, he's not afraid of Martin Luther King's testimony. He's afraid of Fannie Lou Hamer's testimony. And so he decides that the country should not see her testify alive. Johnson is in the White House, and he convened an impromptu press conference. We'll return to this scene in Atlantic City, but now we switch to the White House and NBC's Robert Goralski. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. On this day, nine months ago. He did it knowing that they would break away, thinking he might announce who his choice of vice president was going to be. Instead, he gets up there and he announces, get this, he announces that it's nine months to the day since, since Governor Connolly, who was there, was shot along with President Kennedy. So he announced a nine-month anniversary. Everybody's scratching their heads. Thank you very much. And then he leaves. And by that time, Annie Lou Hamer's testimony was over. However, it backfired on Johnson because it became a story that she had been taken off television and in the news that night and for days afterwards, they replayed her testimony. I was carried to the county jail 
and put in the booking room. They left some of the people in the booking room and began to place us in sail. She had Mississippi in her bones. Martin Luther King or the SNCC field secretaries, uh, they couldn't do what Fannie Lou Hamer did. They couldn't be a sharecropper and express what it meant, right? And that's what Fannie Lou Hamer um, did. And it wasn't too long before three white men came to my cell. One of these men was a state highway patrol. He said, we're going to make you wish you were dead. Man, salute, sister. Fanny Lou Hammer. She, with that voice and that courage, got the president's panties in a butt. She was like, no, you can't show that. We don't want you to hear that at congressional hearing. And you know, Scotty, when the Human Rights Network, and if, because they said this was a, a bold statement to make, but they said that we can expect to have congressional hearings on the 13th Amendment this year. Should that come to pass and you and me get to speak up there at, in front of Congress, I'm trying to tell you we'll be channeling Sister Fannie Lou Hammer. Yeah, there's, um, again, that demonstrates what we were talking about earlier, the power of propaganda. So, you know, certainly the U.S. government understands, right? Today, it spends who knows how much, I would dare say a billion or more, on radio networks, production of radio programs, and and that are um, aimed towards other people in the world, set up over there propaganda networks and so he understood the power of her testimony as she talk about white terrorism and how we pay taxes and and we're second class citizens and we we if we're going to be paying taxes and supporting this system then we want full rights of citizens and when we went to register to vote uh these terrorists and she pointed out the slave catchers to say you know i also uh um um, when she described those uh, state pol uh, Mississippi state police officers terrorizing her uh, after they didn't throw her in jail, I thought about Herman Bell, who was going to be paroled, and how the New York right. Post rolled out. Wait, I'm sorry, I'm a little confused about that, Scotty. Herman, uh, oh, wait a minute, Herman Bell. They was talking about Wallace earlier. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Scotty. Yeah, Herman Bell, uh, member of the Black Panther Party for self defense. A political prisoner. He's going to be paroled in the New York, New York Post. And uh, he was a freedom fighter, okay? And allegedly, he killed some of these slave catchers who was out there terrorizing folks. And so they used this propaganda language of cop killer. And and we know how they speak in a language to demonize this man who, who's going to be uh, paroled. Hopefully, he ain't walked out, you know, those cell doors and, and out here on the street yet. Um, but he's been granted, you know, parole by the parole board. So I'm thinking of, of, you know, that's what she was talking about. The same things that he was facing and others was facing and other people who are political prisoners to this day. And, and Johnson understood, you know, not just the U.S. audience was going to see this, but the international audience. And he calls a press conference where they interrupt 
you know, national, her testimony specifically. So, I mean, that tells you the government knows the power of media, which Malcolm X often spoke about and understood the power of that media, but that white terrorism. And then, you know, recent news this week, you got black families seemingly uh, and apparently being uh, targeted with package bombs. And, and you know, so, um, uh, uh, yes, Max, deep testimony from the sister there. You know, uh, Scotty, also in a form of good news, the message is really spread. People are, it's so simple to understand, but it's like this mind block that people have had through their conditioning, through the education system, through generations making them believe a lie that slavery had ended when it was happening right in their faces, often to them. You had brothers and sisters arrested for the most minor of charges or owing uh, bills that they hadn't paid and put in jail for two or three or four or five years, sitting there thinking it's all their fault. <laughs> you know, they don't even understand what happened to them because they haven't put the pieces together. But it's spreading. And one of the organizations that's recently spoke about it is called Big Think. Big Think, you can find them on YouTube, has had billionaires and presidents and former presidents and prime ministers come on there and tell their stories. And now they've got a brother that came on and told them about the 13th Amendment. So it's in that same category because it's that damn important. Scotty, if you don't mind queuing up that video from that, I'd like to share that next. And it's called. Yeah, I was actually just uh, pulling up there. It's still illegal under one condition. And they they break it down in there. I mean, everybody understands it. It's just that people don't want to accept it. That's the problem. Because when you accept that they are legally practicing slavery, that's a huge change in your life. Yeah, can you hear me, Max? Yes, I didn't hear you, but I just heard it come on. So go ahead. Okay, the 13th, this was published yesterday. Uh, Let me go ahead, subscribe to their channel on YouTube. Um, The 13th Amendment, slavery is still legal under one condition. So, yeah, that news is getting out there. I'm queuing it up. So prisons in America specifically are um, some of the biggest, most dysfunctional businesses we have in our, uh, in our society. And they're business because of the cheap and free labor. When you read the 13th Amendment, that basically was the amendment that broke through uh, slavery and, and freed the men and women who were, who were enslaved at the time, there's a clause in there that allows for the re-enslavement of people in the event that they're convicted of a crime. And so in prisons throughout our country, you have people who are working for basically free. uh, And if they're not working for free, they're working for um, wages that if we saw that happen in another country, we would be very critical of. Uh, When I was in prison, I worked for 17 cents an hour. Uh, That was my starting rate working in the kitchen. But there's also big corporations who invest in prison labor because they can get this labor for a dollar fifty an hour, um, and then they, the sad part about it is that in turn they don't even hire these men and women when they're actually released from prison. Everything in prison has inflated costs. You know, it costs us inside prison. When I was inside, uh, anywhere between three dollars and fifteen dollars for a fifteen-minute phone call. 
we don't have to pay that out here in free society. There's a, a way that we can send emails to, to men and women inside prison, and it costs five cents every time we send that. Whereas out here in society, we can send emails without any charge. And so there's so many ways that the prison is exploited, uh, the cheap labor, the cost of services and goods, and it's a model that, you know, sadly and unfortunately has affected a large segment of our society. Well, I think most people aren't aware of why um, the business models of prison exist because most of our society has been left clueless in regards to how our judicial system works. And it's largely been to the effective campaigns that politicians have ran for years. This whole idea that one of the greatest fears you should have is crime in America. And when you're operating out of a space of fear, you're not thinking clearly. So you're not willing to examine things that are right in, right in front of us. And so the way that the prison system has developed and evolved over the year is it originally started as government-ran, state-ran uh, institutions, and then people started seeing investment opportunities when um, the states couldn't keep up with the budgetary costs of incarcerating so many people. You know, we currently have over two million men and women incarcerated throughout the country. And we represent 5% um, of the world population, yet we incarcerate 25% of the world's uh, incarcerated people. And so at some point, states can no longer keep up with those budgets. Private investors moved in and seized an opportunity. And then they started structuring laws in a way that ensured that people continue to be incarcerated uh, for the most frivolous things. Like, you know, 40 years ago, we didn't have as many laws on the books that we have now. And, you know, when you look at how the war on drugs itself impacted, you know, incarceration rates, you can follow, if you follow that pathway, you'll see how people seized on that opportunity to begin to invest in private businesses. There you go. Big thing. What was that, Max? I said, there you have it, Scotty, from Big Think. Uh, that was your first time hearing it? Yeah, I just subscribed to their uh, channel. But it's not the first time I've heard. Um, I think I've uh, heard him speak before, that particular uh, former victim of slavery, modern-day slavery and human trafficking. But, I mean, yeah, he, he was on the 13th. He, yeah, he laid it all out, laid it all out mm -hmm. for people uh, in terms that they should be able to understand the sad thing is why is this brother standing relatively alone out there i mean why isn't this on the top of everybody's freaking thoughts like slavery's still legal you gotta be hidden where is that i mean you can sit there and you get pissed off because a game doesn't go the way you like it but you find out that these are practicing slavery legally and you're like hmm i wonder what's happening today in the game <laughs> Because like, yeah, they're, they're under mind guy. control. That's the frustrating part. Huh? They've been programmed so long with that lie, I guess it becomes a pro when you try to program new information in there, specifically that information, that's a big deal. You believed all your life that slavery was abolished. You've read all these stories about Abraham Lincoln, Emancipation Proclamation, the Civil War, Gettysburg Address. Um, you know, and 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 then you had another period 
where you then fought for civil rights, even though, you know, uh, even during the colonial periods, you had black people wanting to be recognized um, as um, full citizens since they're being taxed like like everybody else and they're, they're contributing. I mean, they go, that goes back to Paul Coffey. You know, your wife's uh, ancestors, one of the richest men, black men in, in America. So, um, it's important that we get people like him, and especially in front of high school students. And I believe he made, I, I'm not sure if I saw a video where he had gave like a speech to that to high school students. But like, for example, Max, somebody contacted me that I believe they work at, um, UC Berkeley or one of those colleges in California and she was saying she tried to relate to the students that slavery was never abolished and it's like what you just described like it just bounced like somebody just you know uh, uh, shot a nerf ball at them and it just bounced off their noggin and, and you know what I'm saying and, and they didn't think twice about it and so you know she was asking if I'd be willing to uh speak to some of the student groups on that that campus I was like we don't have the budget to fly like that you know or um you know with our media operations it's not possible um but she was like I could do it via Skype and so what I'm trying to say is to further that's what we got to spread it to it's the young people cuz they haven't been under the influence of that lie most of their lives and they may get angry when young people get angry. They they willing to do something. They you know what I'm saying. They they have a lot more energy. That's why the civil rights was mostly teenagers and young college students. The black uh, power movement, Huey Newton and the college students. And uh, so we got to get this information in the right people um, connected to these young people. So if you out there and you know, you have some influence or you work with the schools or a particular school, high school, particularly, uh, I would even say middle school if possible to bring in people and, and talk, you know, uh, Max, I know you established a relationship with, with a teacher and, and what last week we had a call from a student who asked our opinion on something. So, um, I would say, you know, just focusing on our young people, man, bring about the quickest change and arming them. Um, with abolitionist tools. Yeah, I, I believe that you are correct on that, Scotty. Uh, I remember Frederick said it's easier to raise strong children than to repair broken men. He didn't say it was impossible to repair broken men. He just said it's easier to raise strong children. And I focused on youth most of my career. I've worked with many. I mean, I've spoken in front of entire high schools, colleges, the University of South Carolina. I've done that a number of times. And as a matter of fact, just yesterday, Scotty, I received a package in the mail from Worthington Kilbourne High School. And I've had a discussion with them on two occasions, one just a couple of weeks ago. And they sent me a big stack of letters about what they learned and how they felt. And it's, you know, the cover letter is signed by all of them. It's, it's really wonderful. These young people know exactly what we're talking about. It's not that difficult to understand. I've explained it to people in the fourth grade. I've, I've talked with fourth graders and they was like, they were asking questions that were important because they understood. So it's not that difficult to explain. It's complete denial or refusal of acceptance that might prevent one from doing that because I know it is painful and hard to ask that simple question. Is this really slavery? Is it legalized slavery? Is the government practicing freaking slavery on people in the United States of America and abroad? 
come up with an answer. It changes your life. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know. So you don't have to wonder why we be so upset over here. We have already figured that shit out. <laughs> we hey, figured speaking, it out, and speaking, now we're helping other people to figure it out. Speaking and of teachers, places like big things. Yeah, speaking of teachers, you know, like uh, what was the young woman's name, the whistleblower uh, with the Texas uh, Correctional Department, who's the Dominique? Uh, is it Chambers? I'm not sure of her last name. I'm not sure. It's from who last talked week's, about the uh, children program. being abused by guards, and it went on for years, and and the state just ignored her complaints. Everybody on the job up the up the um, you know ladder chain of command all ignored and, and even threatened her, made her fear for her her life if she didn't shut up about these kids being abused and, and not giving their full meals. Like, we're going to talk about the story about the sheriff who bought a $750,000, I think it's a beach home, uh, and, and he did it by starving inmates uh, in, in the jails, exploiting, you know, uh, archaic, uh, I shouldn't say archaic, but a law that most people didn't know even existed. And 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 so, you know, but speaking of teachers, you know, like this teacher who was teaching white supremacy to her students covertly and getting them to to um, you know, uh go along when they were be- when she was being monitored, uh she was teaching them subversion and whatnot and hey, I'm gonna act a little different today. I'm not going to be acting like a racist and talk, and teaching you white supremacy today because I'm being monitored. But just so you know what's going on, we can't talk about that type of stuff. So I would like to see stories of teachers walking out, not walking out, but whatever they can come up with in opposing teaching this lie that slavery was abolished. You, you, you understand what I'm saying, Max? Get yeah, in trouble like a for teacher's some- conference. I know what you mean. But remember who they're influenced by, Scotty, and we broke it down here uh, on the program. We, we listened to the testimony from, uh, I think it was Harvard University, supposedly the uh, greatest minds of the 13th Amendment, most knowledgeable people got together and they discussed its 150th anniversary, and we broke down the speakers. That's who is in- influencing the teacher's curriculum. That's who's telling them yay and nay to these questions. So uh, as we said back then, those are the people, those few who are the ones really driving this narrative need to get checked. Yeah. And of course, Harvard is a, a NCAA member institution. And, and there's also something else about Harvard that I'm very suspect of. I once read an article in depth by people who were there at the time, and they showed the connections of Harvard University along with mass incarceration and the growth of the GEO group and how they were involved with it at every step of the way as attorneys. So I'm very suspect when it comes to Harvard to begin with. I'll find that article and share it. It's probably the most important thing you'll read this year, and I don't say that lightly. So I'll find it and put it on New Abolitionist Radio. You know, you mentioned Harvard. Who else got a, a law degree from Harvard? Former CEO. Alexander. No, former CEO of uh, USA Inc., Barack Obama. Also was uh, the uh, president of the Law Review, you know, their college uh, paper, dealing with law, Harvard Law School, and what have you. And that guy, man... He just really made an opportunity to leave a great mark on history. 
Remember, Barack Obama is a uh, descendant of John Punch, the first person, black person, who was sentenced to lifetime of slavery. This is before, you know, uh, chattel slavery starting. It was just indentured servitude. And him and the white other, you know, uh, I guess they were Irish or whatever, ran off. And he was the only one that was sentenced to lifetime in slavery. The first time the courts sentenced somebody to a lifetime of indentured servitude, ergo slavery. That's that's, And then for one of his descendants to become CEO of USA Inc. And then at that descendant in that office of a, a constitutional lawyer from Harvard had then made that a central part of his administration's goals was to point out that slavery was never abolished and it started with my ancestor and it's going to end with me and, 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 and then you know where the exception clause is removed from the 13th amendment the biggest I'm, I'm, I'm just saying do you understand Max the history that could have been made there and how I feel like, you know, this dude, man, he just gave in to the evil forces of this world instead of those of good. Because he knew full, he knows full well that slavery was never abolished. And the only things he did to address institutional slavery was, uh, uh, you know, a couple of a uh, couple of hundred commutations of people's sentences in the drug war while tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or more still language and you do nothing legislatively or even just to use it as a bully pulpit to tell young people that slavery was never abolished. I I think when I first thought about that, Max, it just blew my mind. I was like, dude, you could have been one of the greatest. Today, I choose not to get into a conversation about Barack Obama. So I'll just leave it at that. And, I'm just uh, talking about the histor- history and how it connects to what we was talking about, Harvard professors and Harvard's yeah, role. I feel that, but the reason yeah. I chose that is because I could go on for days about what we were just you were just saying, you know what I mean? Like, and the connections and all those things, because there's a lot to speak on, and maybe one day we should dedicate to that period of time uh, where Barack Obama was president. He did not use his bully pulpit to preach about ending slavery, but he's the only president I've ever heard who has got up there and talked about uh, police brutality and uh, uh, has also the first president in history to visit a prison and speak to the prisoners. So he did some things to bring light to the subject. And he was talk about it even in the face of the blue line. Uh, he angered the hell out of them. Remember, they wanted him dead, made pictures of monkeys and stuff and said that was him and his wife. Yeah, they wanted so him he, dead and, just for being black, though. It wasn't because he but, was doing anything to undermine the system. But he did those things, and that, that wasn't nothing. It was important. No, uh, it's not but he did he those things because do. of pressure from the abolitionist movement. He didn't do them of his own volition. He did the very minimum. Let me just leave it at that. When he I got a lot of friends that most. fit that description right now. Some of them listening right now. That's true. <laughs> like That's they only true. do one thing or two things, and they share something once a year. Or when they see me, say, "How's that abolitionist thing going?" <laughs> you know what I mean? I got some right now, just like that. So I would say the same thing to him that I said to them. If that's the best you can do, then okay. 
Well, he still has great influence, so he can still become an abolitionist and use that bully pulpit of a former uh, CEO of USA Inc. and tell people the truth. But that's not what he's doing, though. He out there giving million-dollar speeches to bankers and what have you. Yeah, he's among that elitist group, like you said, that we were talking about, who are causing a lot of these problems. You know, I did share that link on New Abolitionist Radio. I'll repeat, it's probably the most important thing that you'll read this year. It's called, it's by Dylan Reed and Company Incorporated. So it's, it's not some, you know, uh, fake news source. And this is a direct discussion about the Clinton administration and their connection to private prisons throughout their entire career, including uh, how they use poverty to enrich themselves. And I'll give you an example of a couple of people that they talk about in there. One is Christopher Edley Jr. He's a Harvard Law professor who served in the Office of Management and Budget, engineered the federal budget to support private federal prisons, and he's now the dean of Berkeley Law School. <laughs> so you got Berkeley Law School. The dean is this guy who was involved in the birth of private prisons uh, and their uh, stock market parade as we know it today. And now he's the dean at Berkeley telling people what they should think in schools. Well, let me move on to our other story because I want to try to get as many of them we can tonight in. And uh, a couple of them for sure I, I want to get in. So if you don't mind, Scotty, I want to go backwards a minute and point out that during the conversation with the brother on Big Think, he was talking about how predatory phones for uh, calls, for instance, on prisoners is just a huge industry by itself. I want to tell you the story that just came out of The Verge where they're talking about some changes in that. But first, I want to uh, just kind of share my perspective. When I think of modern day slavery the way it is today, the closest comparison that I could think of, and not talking about the brutality and all of that, but just the, the mechanisms of it. The closest thing I could think of is the housing boom and how they had these hedge fund managers or hedge fund people. I'm not no expert on this, but this is how I'm seeing it. And they would take your mortgage and then sell it to somebody else and then to another person. They cut it in four pieces and eight pieces, and then they cut the pieces into pieces. And before you know it, Four or 5,000 creditors own your single mortgage. That's how it is with the prisoners now. There's a company that gets this part and another company that gets that part and another company gets that part and one that profits off this suffering, another profits off that suffering. It just goes on and on and on and they're cut into a billion pieces with everybody taking a, a, a little chunk of flesh for them being in this cage. But a new bill could finally ban predatory inmate phone calls. So we got to start going on. It says for two decades, the criminal justice reform advocates have been fighting to fix a persistent and egregious flaw in the U.S. prison system. The frequently exorbitant costs of inmate phone calls, which can run up to $17 for a 15-minute local phone call. I just got to say, it cost me more than that for a video conference with my son when he was in prison. So it was like $15 for 10 minutes. Anyway, a confluence of a, a market failures, political intransigence, I don't even know what that word means, and public indifference has created a broken billing system that Federal Veteran Federal Communications Commission 
official Mignon Clyburn has called the greatest, most distressing type of justice I have ever seen in the communications sector. Wow. Last Thursday, a bipartisan group of U.S. senators introduced a bill that aims to restore federal authority to crack down on what prison reform advocates call the usurious and abusive and exploitative business practices of a small handful of companies that dominate the $1.2 billion U.S. prison phone industry. An Obama-era policy sought to rectify the matter by capping inmate calling fees at as low as 11 cents per minute. But President Trump's telecom chief, Ajit Pai, facing a fierce legal attack from prison phone companies, included the two industries, Titans GTL and Securus, refused to defend a key portion of the rule last year. As a result, the rules are stuck in a legal quagmire. For years, GTL and Securus have exerted effective monopoly power in many states to charge inmates, families, lawyers, and clergy excessive rates that can result in monthly bills of as much as $500. For a struggling family whose former breadwinner may be locked up, that's a lot of money just to stay in touch with a loved one. There's more uh, on there, but apparently they are uh, pushing the issue and looking for change by talking with these senators and sitting down with them to express that this is just, it's a part of slavery is what I would say. But what they're telling them that this is unjust and it's uh, corrupt and it's crooked. And their donors are just literally exploiting human bodies in prisons as captive markets and their families who have done nothing. Yeah, G. Pai is a former Verizon lawyer, and he did, like you you already laid out the information, uh, refused to even enforce the little, you know, the minimum that Obama did and, and you know, refused to enforce those rules. But I don't want to discourage anyone, um, but the likelihood that Trump would sign a bill like that, the way he in the pockets of these uh, of businesses, especially the private prison industry and related industries, um, I, you know, I don't see him signing something like that in uh, 2018. I mean, excuse me, in, in you know, before 2020. So it's good that you got bipartisan senators, but what kind of sway or how persuasive are these Republicans going to be on Donald Trump, who again clearly has been in the pockets of the in the pocket of the private prison industry, which may have violated campaign laws when it formed, you know, those companies formed that super PAC for Trump, you know, uh, um, during the campaign and, and how much they poured into that. So, but again, just cause something, it's unlikely doesn't mean that, you know, you don't work towards pushing that and pushing that. If you don't succeed under the Trump administration, you just keep pushing it and keep the pressure on until, you know, in that venue, uh, you get what you're seeking. Yes, sir, Scotty. Man, uh, I'm going to do that again, but do you want to, uh, our first break is at nine, right? Yes. Okay, good. And then I'll squeeze in this next story because it's all connected. It really is. I mean, we're calling it different stories, but it's all talking about the same thing uh, and how it works. So, as I said, this message is spreading everywhere. Uh, another article that came out from the Art Voice by Frank Ducks, 
is really insightful. I mean, it's, sometimes I feel like he's quoting New Abolitionist Radio, but I'm so glad that people are sharing this information. Uh, so I just want to read some of it. It's kind of lengthy. You read it all, if you like, on New Abolitionist Radio at our BTR community or on our Facebook page. But I'm going to read enough of it <clears throat> so you can feel where he's coming from. At last count, there are 109 prison factories that oversee a forced army of laborers, too poor and disenfranchised to be able to complain, supplying services and goods to the DOD, DOJ, USPS, and others. The federal prison industry began in 1934. By 1977, it reinvented itself from a chain gang image to a new identity that includes a corporate logo and a trade name, Unicor. The backbone of Unicor is the state and federal prison population, now some 2.3 million strong. A Unicorn, Unicor corporate marketing office was created to develop programs that introduced new lines in stainless steel products, thermoplastics, printed circuits, modular furniture, ergonomic chairs, Kevlar reinforced items, and optics using prison labor in an effort to increase the competitive position of the United States. Inmates are raising seeing-eye dogs. Pause there for a second because our rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad today, when he left prison, the prison gave him his seeing-eye dog that he trained. To continue now, inmates are raising seeing-eye dogs for blind people and at one time helped build Patriot missiles. In the United States prison industry, inmates are forced to work for pennies an hour. The U.S. inmate labor pool was larger than the populations of the entire countries like Iceland, Latvia, Kosovo, Fiji, Cyprus, Macau, Montenegro, Montenegro rather, Guyana, Estonia, uh, Djibouti, Luxembourg, Bahamas, French Polynesia, Aruba, to name a few. It's half a million more than the prison population of the world's most oppressive regime, China. China's population is approximately 1.5 billion, five times greater than the USA at 326 million people. Yet the USA has more than 1 million more prisoners than China. The Center for Economic and Policy Research reports that incarceration rates in the US between 1880 and 1970 range from 100 to 200 prisoners per 100,000 people. After unicorns formation in the late 1970s, the inmate population rate climbed from 220 in 1980, 458 in 1990, 683 in 2000, and 753 per 100,000 in 2008. The increase in the incarceration rate is partly attributable to the increase in crime and partly to the explosion of new laws and the lengthening of prison sentences. The rise in crime rate is largely attributable to the proliferation of guns and drugs that flood inner city communities. The supply source is the CIA and its cutouts. Well, you can read the rest of that on New Abolitionist Radio, as I said before. But pretty much, man, he's breaking it down too. Everybody's breaking it down. <laughs> you know, and seeing the connections. Yeah, you mentioned China. I was reading an article earlier, and it isn't the first time, but I guess he's uh, been saying it again. But Donald Trump saying he wants the death penalty for drug dealers. And anybody could be considered a drug dealer. You know what I'm saying? 
not anybody, but I, but like the United States already has the death penalty for on the books for drug kingpins. So is Donald Trump wanting to expand it to be like your little street corner dealers or or you know what I'm saying? The underground market um, that has uh, come about because of poverty, number one. Nobody wants to be out here doing a whole lot of these things. But, hey, if you had to supplement your income because you can't even, um, you know, get any kind. There's no social safety net. Then people going to do what they need to do to survive. So does Donald Trump want to put those people out there trying to survive to death? And it, the article I was reading, it mentioned that China has a death penalty China and Singapore have death penalty for drug dealers, and it's estimated, though they don't know for sure, that thousands of drug dealers are put to death in in China. I'm not, I don't recall if it was every month or every year, but you got to realize they got a billion people. So is that how they keeping their prison population down? Is just by executing people again? I don't know. Uh, I'm I'm just going off of information I read about them having the death penalty for quote unquote drug dealers but um yeah Donald Trump is, is calling for for that so maybe that he's looking to uh solve the over the uh so-called uh um mass incarceration problem by putting people to death nothing is out of the realm of possibilities I, I don't put nothing past these people man we live um doing a, a evil time with evil people in power yeah, I was just reading recently where Tennessee is fining people uh, over $100,000 already just for braiding hair. <laughs> like, for real, man, braiding hair. But yeah, so they're capable of anything. And, you know, uh, all right, we still got about five minutes before we start. Just enough time to really get into the next one, Scotty. And it's the one that uh, I, I think a few, quite a few people have been waiting to hear about. And we talked about it before. This is these sheriffs now who are using this loophole that allows that that allows them to take for their own personal use whatever money is not spent from the prisoners' food funds. So the state is, uh, is or the city or whoever's paying your for your food for these prisoners is giving this money to the prison, and the sheriffs are taking good portions of it home. This one in particular was buying beach houses and expensive cars and living like a pimp. Uh, this comes from Fox News, but it's in other news reports. I picked Fox News because the original one uh, report that I found had ads all over the uh, words, and I just couldn't read it. So if you're if you're making some kind of magazine, take damn ads off the words, please. <laughs> anyway, um, this is from Fox News. It says, Sheriff who pocketed 750 grand from inmate food fund brought beach house for $740,000. An Alabama sheriff who pocketed 750000 from funds meant to feed inmates is coming under fresh scrutiny for the purchase of a beach house that costs nearly the same amount of money. AL.com <clears throat> reported Edwards County Sheriff Todd Entrican received 750000 of compensation from a source he called food provisions during a three-year period when AL.com contracted Entrican about the money he did not deny he received it despite the money being allocated by federal, state, and municipal governments to feed inmates in the Etowah County Jail. Intricate like other Alabama sheriffs, Alabama sheriffs, 
believe a pre-World War II state law allows them to keep any excess inmate feeding funds for themselves. However, such as Jefferson and Montgomery, they put too damn many commas in here in the wrong places. I'm just saying. But however, in counties such as Jefferson and Montgomery, any excess money is supposed to be given to the county government. In forms filed with the Alabama Ethics Commission, Entrican reported he made more than 250000 each of the past three years via the inmate feeding funds. In regards to feeding of inmates, we utilize a registered dietitian to ensure adequate meals are provided daily, Etrigan told AL.com in an email. As you should be aware, Alabama law is clear as to my personal financial responsibilities in the feeding of inmates. Oh, he's bragging about how he is not breaking the law. It says I could do this, see? Regardless of one's opinion of the statute, under the legislation acts otherwise. The sheriff must follow the current law. Entrican's annual salary is $93,178.80, AL.com reported. However, Entrican was also was able to purchase a four-bedroom beach pad with a built-in pool for $750,000. Entrican and his wife, Karen, also own a two-story home in Orange Beach worth about $200,000. Some residents questions Entrican's purchases, including one Matthew Qualls, who was arrested on drug charges earlier this month, just days after he publicly criticized Entrican for keeping the fund surplus. Qualls, who was paid to mow Entrican's lawn, told AL.com in an interview published in February, he questioned why he was receiving checks for his service via a Sheriff Todd Entrican food provision account when he knew of individuals in jail who had gone without meals. Uh, you can read the rest of that on New Abolitionist Radio. It's not too much more. I just want to read the rest. Of you got it. You understand what's happening here. I ain't got no doubt about that. Scotty? As you stated, we reported um, on this particular law in stories from the past, but... Scotty Reed? You might be on mute. Which could be a running joke. <laughs> Type in the chat room. You might be on mute if... <laughs> yeah, I was saying is we reported on this particular law um, before. Also, uh, isn't it true that Louisiana has similar laws where the sheriff controls the money and can keep money? Um, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. So this is a, a common practice. This is a common practice. And this particular sheriff um, just got busted when somebody who was doing landscaping for him questioned, why are you giving me, writing me a personal check or a check, paying me to cut it's a your check lawn? Food provision. Yeah. From this fund, it's supposed to be for food for people in jail. And that's how, which gives them incentive, gives people an incentive to starve people. To withhold food from them. And I was just reminded again of the story of the children in Texas where, you know, the whistleblower, she said that they were withholding food where they're supposed to get three meals a day. Sometimes they might only get one or two, but they're according to the law, according to regulations, they're not getting three. So just little abuses like that as well. And this is to the, to the extreme. So, you know, it's some evil people, man. And, and, they're in elective office, meaning that people went to the polls and voted for this person. And and so this is also not just a matter of electing sheriffs. Um, 
But legislatively, we talk about repealing the exception clause of the 13th Amendment all the time. To me, I will be, if I was governor, I'd be calling for emergency, you know, session in the state house to uh, repeal this in here. The, if all the money isn't used, you know, again, they already starving them, even when they pay contractors to feed them and what have you. But, you know, the money should go back to the taxpayers. Why is it going in this man's pocket, him and his wife? The American Sheriff Association is a threat to the United States stability and always has been. Um, they, they think they're gods. These sheriffs, little small town and big town sheriffs just think they're freaking gods. That's what they're doing in Louisiana, as you mentioned out with the parishes. You know, they're the kings of the whole parish, and they make all that money on those prisons. As we mentioned earlier, uh, saying it's like they take a piece of you out. Well, here's his piece. He'll starve you. But let's say, for instance, that he not only fed every inmate in there, but he gave him filet mignon. He gave him cream cheese cakes. He gave him uh, champagne. And every day was a party. What all they did was eat and drink. And he still went home with a hundred, uh, uh, three quarters of a million dollars, it would still be wrong. And it'd still be illegal. He's robbing the U.S. taxpayers, his state uh, taxpayers, to get this money so he can rob it under these false pretenses. The man should be in prison himself right now. I mean, but he pointed out to you, Max. Man. He pointed huh? out to you that he isn't breaking the law. He isn't doing anything illegal. Just like, and that's the problem. Yeah. Everything that's ever happened, legal, uh, every genocide was legal. Everything Hitler did was legal. Slavery was and is. I mean, legal. but it, I'm just saying, if we're legal. gonna if we're gonna use the word illegal, then you know, um, in terms of the context, then hey, it's not illegal if the law says it's legal in this state. That's why he's not being prosecuted. It's wrong. It's morally wrong. Anybody who has a sense of right and wrong or a sense of justice know this is a grave injustice and probably a international violation of, of human rights uh, laws and codes and what have you. But even without the law, just your sense of humanity, your individual. But again, we all aren't humane. We may be humans, but we ain't humane. And we don't have a problem with stuff like this. We're just like that sheriff. If we was in that position, we'd be doing the same thing, taking trips to Vegas and, and, and you know, big balling on the outside while, while withholding food from other human beings. This is disgusting, man. Could you imagine the outrage if... If let's say, for example, one of these uh, humane shelters for animals or any animal shelter and it was discovered that, you know, this man been getting this budget for to feed the dogs and the cats and stuff like that. And then they were embezzling so uh, that money. I bet you it'd be more public outrage than what we're seeing as this happens to human beings, because, again, as I stated this isn't the first time we've reported on on uh, this. Not this particular sheriff, but similar stories. Right. It's it's an uncovering of an institutional crime that is occurring in our Justice Department among the sheriffs. That's why I said the Sheriff's Association, American Sheriff's Association, is one of the most dangerous organizations in the United States. It is really destroying the fabric of this country because they think they're freaking gods. An example of them would be David Clark. 
David Clark's attitude is the entire Sheriff's Association's attitude. Yeah, also, I've heard sovereign citizen ideology say the same thing I was reading, where they believe, you know, that's where the real power uh, lies is with these elected sheriffs. And they do have a lot of power. They do. I I don't want, you know, um, but, um, you know. Um, I'm not going to say that anybody is is above being brought to accountability because we see David Clark, although he he hasn't been arrested and put in a jail cell, but he was forced out of office, man. He was forced out. He he left under a cloud of investigations. And I was reading the other day, a couple of his deputies is under on trial right now for the murder of the man that they uh, withheld water from. That's the sad part. People who are guilty of crimes against humanity, they aren't in prison. They don't face justice. They get forced into retirement, and then they collect a paycheck for the rest of their life. Right, right. So let's take our break, Max. We're over for our break. Say again? Oh, okay. Well, uh, I just want to make one more quote, if you don't mind, Scotty. The guy calls who called him out about that checking account and went to jail four days later said that he knows people in there that don't get meat but maybe once a month and every other day it was just beans and vegetables so that's how he was treating those prisoners you're listening to new abolitionist radio on the black talk radio network it's real like that we'll be right back Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. Black Talk Radio since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, the next story, Scotty, is gonna just just gonna piss you off, man. I, I'm I'm really bothered by this story because it's pushing the envelope even further now. 
about this murder-death-kill mentality. Apparently, out in Stillwater, um, that would be Stillwater, Oklahoma, it's okay for a bail bondsman to shoot you whether you got a weapon or not if you don't pay them their money. If you refuse to either pay them their money or be arrested for not paying them their money, they can blow you away, and the prosecutors refuse to even uh, address the issue. They're like giving it the green light. Man, these are not trained people. If you ever watch um, John Oliver's uh, skit on bail bonds, please watch that. If you've never watched it, please watch that. So you get an idea of the idiots and the murderers and the racists like Dog the Bounty Hunter that we're dealing with, who have now have a right, apparently, according to this prosecutor, to just shoot your ass in cold blood. You and know, um, we're talking about as a woman, huh? Uh, L.A. Ramon, L.A. Ramon was trying to tell me about some show. He posted it in btrcommunity.com, but it's one of them bounty hunter shows, and he said, if you watch it, it's really disgusting. He said they be committing all kind of felonies and acting like thugs and what have you, shooting up and fighting. And See, that's just, all they are, yeah. like mercenaries, slave catcher mercenaries. It's crazy. And you know, the bail system already is illegal. It's a human rights violation. It's an Eighth Amendment violation. It just shouldn't exist at all. And everybody knows it. That's why across the country, everybody's trying to enact bail reform. And some states have already gotten rid of cash bails. But the problem is it's always been illegal. It's always been a crime of, against humanity. It's always been destroying people and communities. And to act like you ain't got no responsibility for that. And just to say, you know what, you should thank us for making this reform and then move on with your lives. It's some B. I wish I could video slap the hell out of anybody that dares think like that. Anyway, I'm pissed off because about this video. I want to point out something else. There are no black people harmed in this video. This is a white-on-white crime. This white woman is sitting behind a desk with the bail's bondee in front of her. Her son is sitting next to the guy. I'm not going to play the video because, you know, you you, you need to see it in order to understand. So I'm going to give you a little visual of it. Anyway, at one point, he just can't pay his bills, so she decides to arrest him. He says, no, don't put your hands on me. She pulls a gun out of the drawer and point blank right in front of her son. Her son said, Ma, you shot the guy. I sure did. Happy because she knew she could get away with it. How the hell, man? If you haven't seen the video, it's on New Abolitionist Radio, both in our planning page as well as our Facebook page. Go check it out. It's only a couple minutes long. Scotty, uh, any thoughts? Yeah, I'm experiencing some technical issues, Max, so please carry on. I'm trying to clean them up. Okay. All right, uh, what you'll need to do at some point is queue up the video that came from Swift Justice and Unheard Voices. I'll probably want to share that. I, I've got a few stories that I want to cover, but i got to make sure I get that one in as well. Because, uh, you know, the brothers inside don't get enough uh, time to be able to tell their side and what they're thinking about. And they're just as smart as we are. I mean, they, they are us just inside. So uh, I'd like to share his words whenever I can. But yeah, man, this bail bond thing has bail bombing thing has me just bent out of shape because it, it, now you got to worry about this. You have to worry about this. If you don't get this money to this extortionist on time, they'll shoot you, and there's no protection. And it, the man wasn't armed; he had nothing. He was in a t-shirt and was unarmed, and she popped a cap in his ass. 
gladly did it. Miss Dog the Bounty Hunter. All right. How is your uh, technicals going so far, Scotty? Would you want me to play that video now? I thought you said you had a couple more stories. Uh, I do, uh, but I would want to make sure I get enough time for this one in particular. And then the other ones, okay. I guess it, they have to be expended. Yeah, just go into those other stories, and, and when you're ready for the video, I'll be ready. Okay, all right. Well, uh, let's go to this next one. I didn't list it on our things that we were going to do today, but I wanted to get it out there if I had the opportunity. And we've talked about some of these young ladies before. Uh, Genevieve Jones-Wright, for instance, the candidate for the district attorney in San Diego County, who is an abolitionist running for the district attorney's office, a young sister. And this comes from alternate. It says these three women could change the California justice system for good. These candidates are part of a wave of progressive district attorney hopefuls. Um, and we played uh, Genevieve's video on here where she's discussed the 13th Amendment and what she thinks of bail systems, for instance, uh, and things like that. District attorneys can play a major role in reducing or amplifying race-based incarceration in America's largest cities. Black Lives Matter activist Sean King announced in February that he is launching a political action committee to help elect reform-minded DA candidates and draw national is- uh, attention to the issues. No position in America, no single individual, has a bigger impact on the criminal justice system, including police brutality, but the whole crisis of mass incarceration in general, than your local district attorney, King said. They are the gatekeepers of America's justice system. In the past several years, progressive newcomers have unseated conservative old guard incumbents in places like Cattle Parish, Louisiana, Philadelphia, Houston, Denver, and Jacksonville to great effect. The importance of diversifying the office of district attorney cannot be overstated. Across the country, 95% of the district attorneys are white, and only 1% are women of color. And just to stop right there, I think I've met all 1% of them, like literally. Anyway, somebody for the way they talk about things. But anyway, across the U.S., grassroots efforts are underway to reshape the justice system by choosing new progressive leaders who reflect the community they serve. Uh, I'm I'm not going to read the rest. Let me give you the names that that Sean King is talking about. That would be Diane Becton. Former judge Diane Becton made history in the Bay Area last fall when she became the first African-American and the first female D.A., in Contra Costa County, California, just north of San Francisco. Becton was appointed to the position as interim after her predecessor was ousted for illegally spending $66,000 in campaign finance money on personal expenses. She has since launched her campaign to hold the position permanently. In January, one of her rivals pulled out of the race and threw his support behind Becton. As interim DA Becton has shown dedication to progressive goals like reforming the broken bail system, deprioritizing low-level offenses and pursuing alternatives to juvenile lockup. Mass incarceration is expensive and has proven ineffective for achieving the most important goal, which is public safety, she has said. Uh, I just, all right, let me just go through the second two 
Uh, Genevieve Jones-Wright, uh, as I said, we've talked about her here on this program, and we support her. You should make sure that you vote for her when the time comes. In San Diego County in Southern California, Genevieve Jones-Wright runs to outseat former DA Summer Stephen, whose politics, the San Diego Free Press has said, enable a broken police culture, placing the police first, not the victims, the defendants, or justice. The city has recently seen a rapid growth in its homeless population, many of whom have been targeted by police. In one highly publicized case, a police officer lied under oath about his reasons for arresting a homeless man last summer. Stevens' critics say she has been reluctant to remove such officers. Progressives in San Diego see Jones Wright's candidacy as a significant departure from the city's current system of backdoor dealing. She told the Times of San Diego that her supporters are people who see the need for a criminal justice system that is informed by scientific research into the human condition. People who understand that mass incarceration is as expensive as it is inhumane. We cannot incarcerate, incarcerate our way out of crimes, Joan Wright says on her campaign website. Uh, and the final one would be Pamela Price, a career civil rights attorney in Oakland's Alameda County. She's challenging the current district attorney, Nancy O'Malley, a self-described survivor of foster care. Price is a Yale and Berkeley law graduate with a record of advocating on behalf of communities of color and women. In 2002, she successfully argued a racial discrimination case against Amtrak before, you, before the U.S. Supreme Court. And her 10-point platform includes progressive stances like opposition to the death penalty, support of immigration, immigrant communities facing persecution by ICE, and ending stop and frisk practices. So those are the three that they're pointing at uh, as people who are going to make some real change. I'm not sure about the other two, but I do know that Genevieve Jones-Wright knows what's going on, and you need to put her in office. And I would, uh, once again, like the digital slap brothers, uh, Sean King, because Sean King, you know, you have written about this in detail, and you've called it what it was. Both, uh, I've seen my own mentees, like uh, Sister Hannah, uh, Hannah X came out and addressed directly to your face, Sean King, about why you don't support the abolitionist movement when you're the guy who wrote the damn thing about it never ending. So I wish you would correct your language and let's try to get some real justice and stay away from that reform that you're so deeply into, apparently. Like I said, just because they say we're going to end cash bail today doesn't mean you haven't been committing a crime for the past 50, 90 freaking years. Scotty, that video still got me bothered, man. Take over, brother. Can you hear me, Max? Yes. Okay. You know, I still appreciate his efforts. Uh, he the one that just exposed that the NCAA, on more than one occasion, not just this latest yes. lawsuit, uh, used the 13th Amendment to justify slavery. And I guess what you're saying is he needs to be more consistent with his language and use the yeah, language of abolitionists. Yeah, he tells us one thing, tells them another. Maybe he's still like, going uh, through that mental process of, of because it, it still, I, even still now, I'm trying to change my language because when we read, you know, these uh, accounts of slavery, the victims are referred to as slaves and I don't like calling them slaves because they weren't slaves. They were victims of slavery. 
you know, we it's just a dehumanizing term. And so I still catch myself at times or get yep. annoyed at the language that other people uh, use just in referring to victims. I don't think that he's making a mistake, Scotty. I think what he's doing is assist, it's called appeasement. He's appeasing the people and the professionals around him by using a language they feel more comfortable with. But by doing that, you are literally denying the abolitionist uh, stance that this is illegal, that it is a crime against humanity, that it is legalized slavery allowed through the Constitution, and the people committing it are criminals. So you gotta go one way or the other. He has chose the path of appeasement. So when he's confronted or every now and then he'll throw out something to say, you know what, brothers and sisters, I support you. I believe you. I know what you're going through and you know I'm on the path trying to get this done. So here's a bone. But when he'll sit up there, for instance, if he had to testify in front of Congress, what would he say then? Because he may have to come to congressional hearings on the 13th. Why Why would he have to? He's not a long-standing abolitionist. I've never heard him refer to himself as an abolitionist. Wrote the article "How Slavery Never Ended." Okay, so again, Max, I'm not I'm not inside this man's head. You ask me what I think. I think that possibly he's still struggling and coming to terms that slavery was never abolished. In changing the language, you saying he's appeasing somebody? I don't know. I don't know. I ain't never talked to Sean King. I did invite him on didn't hear back from him about a week or so ago. And so, you know, I'm just saying, I appreciate his efforts of writing that article and writing this recent uh, article about the 13th Amendment and why he, and like I was going to ask, I was asking myself the question, why do they keep saying he's a Black Lives Matter activist? As far as I know, he don't sit on no board or no, I've never heard him talk about uh, being one of the founders or active member or leading a chapter of Black Lives Matter. So why does the media keep saying that about he works for the New York? Um, what is it? The New York Daily News. And he writes for the nonprofit news outlet, The Intercept. So I, I don't know why they call him the Black Lives Matter but to me, he isn't an expert on the subject of modern-day slavery uh, to testify before Congress. He's not a former victim. He's not a long-time dedicated activist on the issue. So most definitely, I wouldn't want to see him in, in, um, speak to Congress. And who would even decide who, you know, I guess the Human Rights Network, since they're putting together or putting in the groundwork to make any possible hearings happen. So he is definitely would not be on the list of people that I would nominate well, to speak on the abolitionist movement. I, I think I might disagree on that, and only because I may know a few things that you might not be aware of. Why would you, you want him talking to Congress and you just said he's an appeaser? I, I'm not saying I would want him to. I'm pointing out that they may choose him as one of the people, and if they, because I'm not responsible, who gets to speak there? I'm hoping I get to speak there. At the, that's what I'm hoping. I don't know who they're going to bring in, but I would suspect that they'll bring in people who are friendly towards the reform movement, like a person talking like he was just talking. If you remember, there was a video where Hannah Abdur Rahim. Yeah, we played him, it. I, I remember it. But if you're going to a hearing on the 13th Amendment, 
And he's written an article. The only reason he could go is to cite the article he wrote on the 13th Amendment explaining slavery was never abolished. Any That's what the hearing is about. Anything else is a distraction. It's a side issue. And I am concerned about Black Lives Matter people. They were just on Twitter the other day pushing this Russian uh, propaganda for the Democrats. I'm like, what do they got to do with Black Lives Matter? You know, what do they got to do with uh, uh, justice and anything that's going on with your mission, what you said your mission organization is about? And so, you know, I would have an issue. Um, again, the one who was published you're, you're in the... You're missing some information, Scotty. You're missing some information. Well, if you can't share the information, Max, then I, what? I, I ain't got to, nothing else to go on. me. Huh? <laughs> the information is this. In the video with Hannah... Abdul Rahim. I saw the video. We played him, the video. He told her that his dissertation was on the 13th Amendment. And then he quoted several court cases that he's looking into right now that enforces and will decide the fate of the 13th Amendment in the future. So not only did he write his dissertation on it, not only did he also publish uh, in the Daily News another article on it, but he is currently and has been actively researching this particular topic. He knew about things I didn't know about, like the two cases that he pointed out in that video, which I looked up uh, later on. So he's aware to a very large degree, and the people around him know that he's aware to a large degree. What I'm concerned with is whose side is he on? Which side are you on, boy? Which side are you on when they say, we need some people to come to Congress and talk about this modern-day slavery thing and how the 13th Amendment has affected the United States in the past 152 years. Will they point to uh, Michelle Alexander? Are they going to point to uh, Sean King? Are they going to point to professors at Harvard? Who gets the nod to come in and present the case? So I'm critical as hell right now about all the people that are out there running their mouths about the 13th Amendment and who, which side are they on. There you go. Which side are you on? So, I don't know. I'm, I'm suspect of a lot of people these days. <laughs> I'm just suspect. A lot of people. All right. Did you want to move on as uh, we... Yes. We have uh, maybe five minutes left in the news part. So, is there anything that you wanted to uh, cover this evening before no. we uh, got off the news? No. I'm good. Okay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and listen to uh, Brother Swift Justice in the Alabama State Prison and what he has to say for us today. And uh, I'm going to take very long, and then I'm going to step back after I address it and let y'all think about what I had to say and contemplate my words. You know, I see a lot of discussion all over the newspaper of different varieties, several media, uh, social media places, and even widely spread all over the internet about the issues surrounding the prison and judicial system and the many other topics that make up our everyday lives out there in the world. Uh, I see a lot of talk, a lot of opinions, a lot of anger, a lot of emotions, so on and so on. I see a lot of finger pointing on who's doing this and who's doing that. I see a lot of knowledge being passed around. That's no doubt about that. 
things are being exposed with intensity by many different groups, many different individuals, and this is a good and variable, viable and valuable thing that we must have. However, I have to ask this question. What good is knowledge if we do not put it to use? What good is knowing if we refuse to take the knowledge and build upon it? For example, I'm going to use this example just to try to make my point. Let's just look at this from a perspective of war. Imagine our specialty intelligence here in the United States and our government learning that North Korea has just launched 2,000 fighter jets that are armed with nuclear weapons to the sky and they're all headed our way, threatening to destroy our very freedom, our way of life, and even our lives. All right? Picture that. Picture that in your mind. Picture also our government intelligence seeing it coming. But they sit on they sit on this knowledge. They discuss this 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 knowledge around these very big pretty oak tables with hundreds of different people sitting around it. They point fingers at who financed the attack, what those individuals will gain from the from, from the destruction of America and what needs to be done. But imagine what is happening in the very sky while they're discussing this. In which the, in which those two thousand fighter jets armed with nuclear weapons are using as a tool come to uh, as, a, as a tool, as a road to accomplish the, the, the mission while the knowledge of a real threat is just being discussed and acknowledged but no form of uh, real countermeasures are actually being launched. In a situation like that it's obvious that an imminent threat is a real is very real to a group of people and that's the American people in that situation and the only way to react is with actions of countermeasures and counterattacks as a collateral hold right in other words basically we're going to war it will require unity from the intelligence branches it will require unity from the military branches the politicians and even the citizens there is not one single soul that can be idle and all of these individuals must know their part discussions Stop once a solution to the threat has become agreed upon. And then war begins. Today, we all accept we face as a group of people an imminent threat in relation to our judicial and our penal system. There's no doubt. That's the discussions that, that I've noticed. That's the discussion that's the, all about the movement. We even have discussed solutions now for years. However, we have failed to unify and move in countermeasures. We have yet to set our fighter jets to the sky. We have yet to set our ships to the oceans. We have yet to set our ground troops to the field, armed and prepared, ready for war. We have been talking intelligence for years while our North Korea continues to get closer and closer and closer to their target. Trust me when I tell you that a parade of soldiers in the streets of our nation sends no message to our attackers. Trust me when I say attackers are not impressed with our uniforms and synchronized marching ability. I know you've seen it all over the news and all over the television where the Korean government turns around and marches their soldiers through there, their tanks, their bombs. Now Trump talking about doing the same thing. And then you turn around and you start flipping the channel because that's not impressing you, right? Well, they're not impressed either. They fear not the citizen of the United States. They, they don't fear us. Because we have yet to unify and start a true counterattack. They will only respond to our knowledge when we come together and aggregate. Aggregate means to come together and collect into a mass force. Once we do that, we're going to have to use our soldiers to attack the threat.
People, it's time we take a moment to evaluate on what I'm touching on. The topic of mass incarceration and modern-day slavery, convict leasing, all have been a topic of discussion since 1865 and before. It's nothing new. Modern-day slavery did not start in 2013. It's not so modern. It was taking place in Shelby County, Alabama, and other counties all throughout Alabama, and other states in the 1800s, when subsidiary companies like Tennessee Coal, Iron, Iron and Railroad gave $12 a month for labor to pay conjured up, or conjured up laws such as vagrancy and so on and so on. The very thing we are talking about, posting about, writing about, mojiing about has been modern day for over 150 years, and very little has changed other than the evolving of it. Are you not tired? of talking about what is designed to destroy you. This goes for both the confined and the free citizen, what I'm talking about. But I stress this to the confined citizen because you and I are the heart of the countermeasures we are going to have to take. Without you and me, the ones that are in the so-called free world cannot be effective. I stress this to you that are in the world. Stop the division. Stop the downplaying of the ind this individual or that group. Stop trying to compete for notarization and unite. We are all guilty of this. I am guilty of this. Just recently I was having issues with an individual that, that I should not have been having issues with. We all should have the same mission. Ask yourself, what is your mission? If it's not to stop the mass incarceration of your company, I mean, of your community, excuse me, for the, for, for the profit from someone's incarceration or labor, then you may have a different agenda. You need to think about it. It's time we question our motives, our mission, our, our, and our willingness, and how far we're willing to go about it. Many of you are probably going to criticize what I'm saying and take offense to thinking that I'm, I'm saying you're not doing anything or making a difference, but please do not put words in my mouth. If that's what I was saying, I would say it. Your work is not going unnoticed. Every last individual from behind these walls in the concrete jungle, take notice of what you're doing. And we appreciate that. What I'm saying is our mission is missing something. And in my opinion, it's missing the unity and the power tax. Think about it. All right. Your thoughts, Scotty? Um, I don't have any. I understand completely what he's saying. Yeah, I heard him too when we had a discussion about this. Uh, first of all, if what he's saying is true, that we have talked too much about it, then you and I are unnecessary. So we should just quit right now because this is what we do every week. We talk. But about he it. said that's not what he's saying. I, I know. I, I know. I remember he said it. Don't put words in his mouth. I, I, I remember. But I'm saying that this is how it sounds. And we've come full circle on the program tonight, starting out with the question of if knowledge is power, what is wisdom? And he's talking about the possession of knowledge and what we're doing with it and what we've been doing with it for 150 years now. And where are we going with it? Because we don't have any organizational community, he's saying, that's really pulling this together in the ways it needs to be together. And we're fighting amongst each other. And that's one thing I do want to touch on, the fighting amongst each other. Anything other than freedom is slavery. Can I say that again? Anything other than freedom is slavery. So if you're talking about prison abolition, you're not talking about slavery abolition. You're literally saying 
that this is all a mistake, that the errors in judgment over time, and we've ended up with this huge prison industry that we can live without. That's just saying. That's not what we're saying. So you're like, we're really co competing now for which narrative is correct and lives depend on it, literally. And that's what he's talking about. He's like, we're dying in here, and they are. While you guys are out there arguing about who got the right narrative, I'm telling you, I'm standing on my narrative, and anybody that thinks otherwise is a problem. Because you're just justifying this bullshit. You're killing my people just like anybody else is doing because you're not addressing the real issue that this is slavery, it's legal, it's allowed through the 13th Amendment, and like he said, they've been practicing it now for 152 freaking years. And it's taking you this long to wake the hell up and address it for what it is. So, yeah, prison abolitionists, reformists, I don't want nothing to do with y'all because you're telling lies. You're not seeing clearly. And if you just look a little deeper and address the issue as it should be addressed as a crime against humanity, it will change everything. That is that whole new thinking we need. That is that, uh, what do they call it, Scotty? Uh, where uh, you go off the rails in your thought process. <laughs> you know, radical thinking. This is the radical thinking, and everybody that stood up for it and used it as their position has been very successful in what they've been trying to achieve. I mean, we almost got some of these damn laws off the books, like in Colorado with Amendment T. We're so close to a congressional hearing. Come on now. If that's not progress, I don't know what it is. Definitely, but I got a different message, Max, if I may chime huh? in before we run out of time. Yeah. I got a different understanding of what he was saying. I think in a covert way, he was talking about the armed wing of the revolution, the abolitionist movement. Where are those Word. that's agitating for armed confrontation? Where are those that's agitating for a second civil war until slavery has actually been abolished. So I, that's where I understand him to to be saying, that's what I interpreted from his message. He's, he's not saying they're educating the public because even in a war, he using war analogy, we would be known as recruiters. You see the United States military <laughs> has its programs and its people in the, embedded in the U.S. news media and it pays for commercials and flyovers at NFL games and, and things and they send recruiters out to your house to talk to you and tell you about the war efforts. So he's he not saying that those people aren't needed and that nobody's recognizing what they're doing, but he's saying that there there's an element missing. And um, no, on the unity part, unity is hard, man. In my study and listening to elders on on successful res revolutions, only five percent of the population actually engaged. The other ninety five percent were just bystanders. So when I hear people say we need unity, I hear in my head, even though they don't may not use the exact words, I'm hearing we need one hundred percent unity. Okay. Now I do believe there are frivolous cheap shots that people take at each other and get in their emotions and 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 there are some people who who clamor to be on on TV and to get some of that money uh from uh those billionaire uh donors to whatever political party. 
you know, there there's always these people I using to like um one elder said he called it the the uh, nonprofit industrial revolution, you know. And so, but I'm just I particularly uh picked up on the you know we we got a lot of teachers, but we ain't got a lot of soldiers. And if we ain't got no soldiers, then nobody's actively planning to you know we're depending upon gradual abolitionists and at the mercy of legislatures but it, it you know i i have i have to look at the model set by people like frederick Douglass, harriet tubman and and others man so i mean i'm gonna leave it at that man because you know everything ain't for the public airways well when it comes to the whole uh gradual abolitionist versus immediate abolitionists i'm an immediate abolitionist but i understand that all abolition is gradual because we've been here for a few centuries trying to get this shit done and we haven't gotten it done yet so you can't get no more gradual than that i guess we're just hoping for the day that it finally gets done our ancestors were the most successful with this uh and they well really they can't you can't be successful if the job was never done i think that's the wrong well, they word were the to, most successful to use the, no i yeah. think they came the closest and right. that was well, the Civil like War. That. They came the closest. That they was the, the Civil War, which you correctly called in the past the largest of um, slavery of rebellion. rebellion of victims of slavery ever to occur on this soil, and and right. so they came the closest. And it seems in this, um, not seems, but based off a of historical record, man, it, it takes great violence, man. Because you're opposed to you, I mean, your opposition is is evil, soulless people who ain't got a problem with enslaving other individuals. And so, when you're dealing with someone like that, sometimes there is no reasoning with them. Just like Lincoln tried to reason with Stevens, and and Stevens just wouldn't be reasoned with. They would no, no, we were drawn. Uh, no, we keeping slavery in place and we'll fight you for it. Yeah, I've never met, personally met, a racist who changed their mind. And that's why I don't mess with them. I don't get into conversations with racists. I don't argue with racists. I don't debate with racists. I ain't got nothing to say to them because their argument is not legitimate and I refuse to give it legitimacy. And speaking of rebellion, that would be a good segment to go right into, wouldn't you think, Scotty? Yes, as we're running out of time. Yes, sir. So this week, uh, our For Freedom's Sake, a history of rebellion segment is Gabriel Prosser. He was the leader of an unsuccessful slave revolt in Richmond, Virginia in 1800. Born in the slavery around 1775, Gabriel Prosser was owned by Thomas H. Prosser of Henrico County, Virginia. Little is known of Prosser's life before the revolt that catapulted him into notoriety. Prosser's two brothers, Solomon and Martin, and his wife Nanny were all owned by Thomas Prosser and all participated in the insurrection. Gabriel Prosser at the time of the insurrection was 24 years old, a young brother. Six feet, two inches, literate, and a blacksmith by trade. He was described by a contemporary as a fellow of courage and intellect above his rank in life. Wow. With the help of other enslaved people, including Jack Bowler and George Smith, Prosser devised a plan to seize control of the, of 
Richmond by killing all of the whites except the Methodists, Quakers, and Frenchmen, and then establishing a kingdom of Virginia with him, himself as monarch. Prosser and the other revolt leaders were probably influenced by the American Revolution and more recently the French and Haitian revolutions with the rhetoric of freedom, equality, and brotherhood. In the months prior to the revolt, Prosser recruited hundreds of supporters and organized them into military units. Although Virginia authorities never determined the extent of the revolt, they estimated that several thousand planned to participate, including many who were to be armed with swords and pikes made from farm tools by enslaved blacksmiths. Man, it was probably like 50 people, and they were like, it's thousands! Prosser planned to initiate the insurrection on the night of August 30th, 1800. However, earlier in the day, two enslaved people who wanted to protect their masters betrayed the plot to Virginia authorities. Governor James Monroe alerted the militia. A rainstorm delayed the uprising by 24 hours, preventing Prosser's army from assembling outside Richmond and providing the militia crucial time to prepare a defense of the city. Realizing their plan had been discovered, Prosser and many of his followers dispersed into the countryside. About 35 leaders were captured. Like I said, it's like 35 people. It's thousands! About 35 leaders were captured and executed, but Prosser escaped to Norfolk, where he was betrayed by fellow enslaved individuals who claimed the reward for his capture on September 25th. Prosser was returned to Richmond and tried for his role in the abortive uprising. He was found guilty on October 6, 1800 and executed the following day. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio remember Prosser's Rebellion. Scotty, I can't help but remember all these rebellions. And there's one thing I found in common with every single one of them, except for just a couple, like the Haitian Rebellion, for instance. And they always get sold out by their own people. They get betrayed every single time. And when this betrayer does his dirty work, everybody dies. Even people that didn't have nothing to do with it. Everybody starts dying. Yeah, um, and I will point out that Gabriel Prosser was a mulatto because I know there are some people out there that like to promote hatred within the black community and say, hey, the mulattoes are the ones that was always betraying us all throughout history. And then when we look throughout the rebellions here on this continent, most of them was led by mulattoes like Gabriel Prosser. Man, you're absolutely right, Scotty. Um, Scotty, would you like to do the next one, which would be, uh, I guess we could do either our writer of the 21st century underground. All right, I, I got it. Or, okay. A man wrongfully incarcerated for 38 years leaves prison with puppy he raised. Malcolm Alexander spent decades in prison for a crime he didn't commit with the Innocent Project's help he went home, along with a dog named Innocent. Marcus Alexander spent nearly four decades incarcerated for a crime he didn't commit in 1980. When he was just 21 years old, he was sentenced to life in prison for rape. Alexander said he was innocent then and maintained his innocence in all the years since. The Innocence Project, a nonprofit legal organization dedicated to exonerating wrongfully convicted people in reforming the criminal justice system since 1992, joined Alexander's fight for freedom in 1996. On January the 30th, absolved of the crime thanks to DNA evidence, he walked free from the Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola, a maximum security prison plantation. He is now 58 years old. 
and he didn't leave prison alone. A day after he was freed, he reunited with the dog he raised behind behind bars, the nine-month-old puppy, and this is from the U.S. Today show, and I kind of like take issue with them trying to, you know, make it a feel-good story of this victim of slavery, and oh, look, he got a cute little puppy that he raised behind bars, oh, how humane, although that prison must not be so bad, they let them have little puppies to raise, oh, and he named them innocent, that's so cute, excuse me, oh, <sighs> The nine-month-old puppy's name is Innocent, or Ian for short. I named her Ian because I was innocent and she was innocent, Alexander told a CS, CBS affiliate. Ian was born uh, in 2016, Alexander recalls. I wrote the date on my heart, he told today. I can remember her birthday better than I can remember my own. Her mother was a friend's dog. Man, this is a long article, man. <laughs> I Just can't read all of this in, in the time that we have. Um, okay. It goes on. See, uh, here's another issue, and this is, you know, um, being careful. And when we read and stuff, being able to identify, and that's why I had to pause people and tell you how they programming you. Because now they're saying, oh, he learned carpentry, woodworking, and jury-making skills in prison. And what's this stuff, you know, Kamala Harris been pushing? Oh, they get these job training programs. I think Jared Kushner, in the last um, little meeting Trump had, they was like focusing on, you know, uh, keeping people locked up on mandatory minimums and pushing those. But, oh, well, we're going to train them, though. We're going to train them. That's how this story from NBC reads to me. So, anyway, he is out now. Uh, under Lu- uh, Louisiana's campization law, Malcolm could receive only $250,000 plus funding for job training and education for his 38 years of wrongful imprisonment, she said. And the state could oppose his compensation application, which often happens even in the face of evidence of factual innocence. Yes. So this amount is not even guaranteed. It could take years for his claim to go through. So. There you go. Uh, we welcome uh, Mr. Alexander to freedom, and we hope that you get your reparations. Amen, brother. Welcome to freedom. It ain't easy doing what we're doing, Scotty, because, you know, we, we're dissecting what other people have said who are not abolitionists, and sometimes there are people who are pro-slavery or trying to dress this up as something that it is not, like you just pointed out, particularly with the corporate media. Um, all right. Our next segment this evening is going to be our abolitionist in profile. It's another long one. We'll make all of these available on New Abolitionist Radio for you to read them in their entirety. Today, we remember Luis Gonzaga Pinta de Gamas, or Luis Gama. He was a Brazilian poet, journalist, legal activist, abolitionist leader, and former slave. He was born in 1830, a free mulatto in Salvador, the capital of Brazil's Bahá'í province. His mother, Luisa Mahan, was a black woman from Ghana who had formerly been enslaved. Mahin made a living for a time selling vegetables and fruits in the streets before helping to lead two slave revolts. Her involvement in the rebellions resulted in her being deported back to West Africa. Luis Gama's father was a Portuguese aristocrat about whom little is known. Gama was sold into slavery at age 10 by his father, who was trying to pay off gambling debts. However, the sale of the boy was illegal. As Louis Gama had been born to a free mother, 
and the trade of slaves was no longer allowed in Brazil. Nonetheless, Gama lived and worked as a house slave for eight years in Sao, Sao Paulo. In 1847, the 17-year-old befriended Antonio Rodriguez do Prada, a law student who taught Gama to read and write, and piqued Gama's interest in learning more about law. The young law student also encouraged Gama to gather documentation pr proving the illegality of his sale into slavery. Once Gama had gathered these documents, he ran away and joined the army. While serving there, he worked as a clerk at the private law firm of Francisco Maria de Sousa Furtado de Mon Mendoza. <laughs> yeah, I had to forgive me. I, 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 I'm not familiar with the language, pardon me. Who mentored Gama in law and would later become the godfather of Gama's son. Gama served in the military for six years, but was discharged in 1854 for insubordination. After his discharge, Gama began working in Sao Paulo police stations as a copyist and clerk while writing a book on the side, Primerius Trovas Berliscas, which was published in 1859. Primerius was a collection of satirical social commentary in the form of poetry. Its publication made Gama a prominent and controversial figure. Some of the best-known poems from the collection criticized Brazilian mulatto society for coldly disregarding their oppressed black countrymen and for romanticizing whiteness and the high social status associated with it. This poetic criticism was accompanied by Gama's increasing involvement with abolitionism. Gama joined the growing liberal, liberal political movement in Brazil and helped establish the anti-monarchy, pro-democracy Brazilian Republican Party. Not all abolitionists were anti-monarchy, nor were all in favor of black participation in abolitionist activities. There were also divisions in the party over the time frame for the emancipation of slaves in Brazil. In 1873, the party drafted and approved a bill that called for the gradual liberation of enslaved people in Brazil. Gama wanted immediate rather than gradual emancipation and angrily left the party because of it. You can read the rest of Gama's story on New Abolitionist Radio. It is a very wonderful story. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you, Luis Gama. Salute. Yeah, I know we were running low on time, Scotty, uh, down to the, the final seg. That was the final segment there. So, And you got another program coming on, um, from what I'm aware of. Uh, in any case, Scotty, uh, we got... About five minutes left. Is there Actually, we got two to... minutes. <laughs> we got two, got two minutes. minutes. So we got two minutes. Okay. Well, then, it's... first, I want to say thank you to everybody that tuned in today. Please try to share our promotions every week. We need to get this narrative out there, and we are fighting against a, a beast. And that little thing, like sharing the link, makes all the difference in the world. So, Scotty, any final comments for the evening? Yeah, just want to thank all the abolitionists out there for their support and the support of Black Talk Media Project. And, you know, just get in where you fit in according to your talents and skills that uh, you have developed or you have been blessed with and see how you can utilize those in the abolitionist movement. Freedom of death. Word. Um, I'm not going to take up a lot of time. I'm just going to keep it real simple because it's the only thing that really matters at this point. Abolition is a reason for a revolution, y'all, so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Rise up, 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 rise up,
lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children.